I, you know, I think those first couple of years of teaching get better and better, hopefully. But then there's probably going to be some dips. And we can expect that from us. We can expect that from our students. But yes, learn how to navigate through that and keep going. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the Past Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited because of the conversations that we are going to have. And today we're actually back with an old friend. Um, We are going to be talking with Bill Manchester. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we met with Bill and his students in his incredibly lively and exuberant classroom back in episode number 34, um, Engineering Creativity Through Music. Um, So Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be back. Yeah. And for those who might not remember, or for those that this might be your first episode, a little bit about Bill um, Manchester. He is an 18-year and counting veteran teacher who is actually quite amazing in the classroom. Uh, The stuff that he does with his kids is the things that we dream about when we contemplate being teachers. And But most recently, um, you know, amongst all the things that Bill has been doing, um, he's published a book titled, When You Feel Like Quitting Teaching, read this book. And so today, because Bill is such an epic teacher, I thought it was super timely with everything that's going on in the world for us to have a conversation about why Bill was so compelled to write this book and what's in it for those of us that might really need to have this conversation with Bill. So let's just dig right in, Bill. Okay, sounds great. All right. Okay, so, you know, high level, 100,000 foot. There are a lot of things that you've got going on in your world and in your life and in your classroom with your kiddos. And so given all the things that we see outward, right, when we we observe what's going on in the fishbowl, if you will, that is the teaching and learning environment that you've created at Bexley um, in your classroom, why, why write this book? Well, I felt like there, this... This idea of feeling like quitting um, is really universal. And well, to to maybe go back a little bit, there was a time, I mean, I I feel pretty confident, you know, especially after writing the book to say, I'm I'm not quitting teaching. No, I really love this. I like it here. But there was a time in the middle of my career when I really did feel like, I don't know that I can keep doing this. I don't know that I can do this for 20 years um, to fill out the time where it makes sense. And, and I know there's a lot of teachers that reach that point. Um, but also, there, there's so many things that kind of came together. Um, there was a, a new student, a new teacher in our building uh, a couple years ago, and she caught me in the lunchroom. I was on my way to get something. Normally, I just grab something and come back to my room to work. And she was like, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this class. Have you got any ideas? Um, and I kind of said a couple things. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to get my lunch and let's talk. And just threw out these ideas. And the thing was, even before that, I'd seen her teaching. She was doing a great job. The kids were talking about her class and how much they loved it. But, you know, there were these issues that were cropping up that I could tell 
even from my experience, if they we didn't get any kind of resolution, that's the kind of things that you know, make it hard to imagine doing this for 20 years. So we had that conversation and then, um, you know, it just took her ideas even further. What kind of she was already starting to do, here's some more ways to do it. Um, and so that experience and others kind of like that really inspired me that, you know, maybe there's something to say here. There's tools. Um, you know, we this we have this balance between the art of teaching and the science of teaching. And it's it's really easy to feel like when you when you feel like quitting, that it's just random and there's nothing I can do to fix this to feel differently. And so I wanted to go through some kind of specific things that here's the problem, here's some ways to start thinking about approaching it. You know, I, I hate to say there aren't real clear-cut answers because I think that teaching just doesn't work that way. Here are some ways to start thinking about it, to start moving on to see that, hey, this problem doesn't have to be a 20-year problem. We can get some resolution. I can grow in this area. My students can grow in this area. My parents can grow in this area. It doesn't have to be like this all the time. But those great things about teaching, we can keep those um, and really use that to propel these long-term um, teaching situations. Yeah. And I think that that's par for the course, right? I mean, I, I know that, um, you know, in my work over the years with, with teachers from all over the place, you know, what you're talking about is is not a surprise, right? There, there comes a moment, right? And oftentimes it's after the, the shiny newness, right? Of, of being that that early teacher. And, and the early teacher, it's hard, right? Because it's not what you thought it was back when I, you were a student, you know, and you you aspired to be a teacher and then you, you, you get there and you become the teacher and oh my gosh, it can be overwhelming, right? We all understand that. It can be a ton of work at the first little bit, but then something happens kind of almost in that middle age, that midlife sort of crisis of the career space. And this is very a very sort of common sort of thing. And so I think that the way you you describe and the vignettes in the book, I think are super helpful because they are interviews and conversations with real teachers that you've had and you've brought their experiences directly onto the page to sort of illustrate the things that you're talking about. And I think that that's super, super helpful. I will also say that, you know, back a year and a half ago, more than that actually now at this point, two and a half years probably because of the pandemic, when I was in your classroom, when we recorded episode number 34, I can tell our listeners at one point while we were doing that interview, and you might not remember this, but I do, a teacher shows up right in the middle of all of it because they were looking for your brainstorming. Could you help me think about X? And I don't even remember what it was that she was looking for, but it was, it was, it was habit it was so casual and so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There was no fear in her to come into your space and say, I need help, which is the mark not just of a fabulous teacher, but of a fabulous mentor. And I think that a lot of, you know, my read of, of the book is you're, you're really trying to mentor folks over that moment. Right, exactly. And, and as you say, even, you know, early career teachers to to not go into it blind you know and to say this is going to be these things are going to happen and let, let's be ready for it yes absolutely mm-hmm. yeah and i and i think that oftentimes one of the other things i know that you really sort of wanted to spend a little time talking about and i actually really appreciate is this notion that often that pushing somebody sort of over that hump it's not a big something you refer to it as a nudge right that sometimes 
all we need is just a little bit of a bump or a nudge, to use your word, right, to move us to sort of the next space. And you you talk about or you frame this idea by thinking about the structures of what works and sort of thinking about the ecosystem of what stands in your way. So let's let's start with the with the well, place everybody likes to go with those constraints. So what stands in our way in your mind, Bill, as it relates to how how you want to help folks work through those pieces so they don't quit because we don't want our great teachers leaving us. That's right. That's right. And um, yeah, and I, I think that that small, you know, thinking about the nudge idea and that yes, it's not going to take this big thing. And in fact. I think sometimes that is the thing that um, can be an obstacle even. You know, it, it is, right now, it is easy to see amazing teachers everywhere. You know, you can look on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest and to see these amazing things. And and um, and I've, I've seen teachers that are struggling and they feel like, oh, I'm going to get a hold of this brand new program. I'm going to do this big new thing. And then that's going to be it. And then I'm going to, I'm going to feel better. But oftentimes, then you're just going to be always looking for that next big thing. You know, so it's these small steps, consistent, all the time steps that we, we really need to take to get us there. And realizing, I mean, that whole thing of realizing that that teacher that you see, that that's their best day, that's their best thing forward, and you don't see all the other stuff underneath. So, yeah, I think those, just thinking in terms of small steps, and we may not there are solutions that may not be solved tomorrow. You can take one small step towards it, and these things work over time. And like you said, talking to all the teachers that I talked to for the book and you know, drawing from the experiences that I'd seen, these are things that work. Um, and it looks different in different contexts, and it doesn't work overnight, but these are the things that the teachers do and they have that long-term success. And you got to be ready for that, that long-term plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm super curious, and we're gonna get into a little bit some of the nuts and bolts here in a second. But one of my my I guess one of my most I wouldn't say it's my favorite quote from the book, but it's definitely one of the things that got me thinking the most, right? And I really wanted to dig in and say, do I fully understand what Bill means by this and what its implications are, right? And that that is a statement that basically says feeling like quitting but not quitting also has a cost. Mm. Right? So I want to dig into that a little bit because I do think that ultimately that phrase sets the stage for why you don't quit, why why you do the work to go back to what you love. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it is heartbreaking, (laughs) you know, that I, I see teachers, I come in contact with teachers that you know, they're saying phrases like, I wish I would have picked something different. I would not suggest teaching to my children. I would not suggest it to anybody. But, you know, I've got 10 years left. I've got five years left. This is what I have to do. I can't do anything else. And that that feeling like quitting, but not being able to quit, you know, I think it's another way of saying that. And I, I just think the that's that's really a hard way to live. I feel like I'm stuck in this thing. I can't get out. And especially when with teaching, because it's such a highly emotional mm-hmm. profession. You know, there's I, so I much there's, passion in it, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So and much if you're not doing that, I just think it's it's so exhausting and 
it's exhausting and draining even when you're into it but then when you're not feeling any of those those good parts of it yeah I, I just think it becomes so hard and such a just a hard thing to push through and so yeah so I I, I just feel like giving hope to teachers to say you know there's a lot of teachers that are saying I'm I'm not going to quit but that doesn't mean I don't want to and so how do we move past that to say how can we have less days less times when we're feeling like quitting because it's it's hard yeah, it is. It can be. Days can be really tough. And, you know, it's really funny, um, you know, when I came across this sort of in the text, I had to chuckle a little bit because years ago, we had um, a bunch of sticky notepads, you know, just the little sticky notes, like we, we all use them all the time, right? And and we use them all the time in the trainings or the work that we would do with schools, you know, the ubiquitous bucket of multicolored sticky, sticky notes, you're going to use them for a thousand different things. And so we had them printed with the phrase, teach your passion, Mm. right? Because I think it was some of those very similar things, right? And so when we would find that if you could help somebody who was right to your very point, right in that moment, you know, I, 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 you know, I feel like quitting, but I can't quit or, and I can't figure out how to sort of reframe my mindset so I can find that thing that brought me to this profession to begin with, because that's the beauty, the joy of the opportunity, right? And how do I help folks get, get back there? And one of the things that, that we found that was a nudge that worked was spending just a little bit of time understanding what's the thing you love to do. Right. What do you love? What do you, Bill Manchester, love? Not Bill Manchester, the guy, not Bill Manchester, the teacher right now. But what do you, as a human, what do you love? And oftentimes, you know, there were usually four or five things that, you know, if you spend a moment trying to figure that out and you're like, well, great, because three of those things you just listed, you can use, you can bring them into your classroom and they can be part of your, your everyday. And if they're part of your everyday, then they're passionate and engaging for your students. Yeah, yeah. For sure. That, yeah, I think that, and I, I was thinking about just the work that the Past Foundation does, and I see that helping people find that passion and just being able, to, and, and even the hope of we don't have to do teaching the same way, you know, because I think a lot of teachers get into that where I, I feel like could even, if I'm going to have to do it the same way. And, you know, one of the beautiful things that I feel like Past Foundation is saying doesn't have to be that way. We've got so many other ways we can teach, so many other things we can do, which, I mean, I, I think the things you're doing are great and this hope that you're giving to teachers through mm-hmm. that is a big part of all this too. But I also think that it goes back to the sort of foundational pieces, which you allude to really early on um, in your mm-hmm. book. Um, you know, you give an example of, I think it's Martha, right? Martha, yeah, yeah, teacher, yeah. who I uh-huh. assume was your mom. She is my mom. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> yes. like like me, my mom. So same thing. Parents as teachers, right? You know, so <laughs> how you find yourself in this journey, right? That's the thing I know is the thing I saw for years and years and years. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, but it gets back to sort of some of the foundational pieces that you're talking about, right? And you refer to it as a learning triangle. And it becomes this sort of set of, of structures that you argue, and I think appropriately so, become a foundational piece that you can then make these passionate pivots from yeah absolutely so so talk with us a little bit about these three things and and why you chose these three as opposed to any other things uh, you know within the sort of pedagogical approach you could have chosen to say i think these three are the ones that matter the most yeah so the other engagement and then content and structure 
And, and it really came out of, I would see these great ideas. Well, we had my, you know, in college, we had methods classes where we would be, we were taught how to teach elementary music, but the class was all music majors, you know, very high level musicians. And so the, the problem with the class was we would do these awesome arrangements and people were singing and playing instruments and we could put them together in about 30 seconds. And the class sounded incredible. Um, and then my first time I tried to do it with an elementary class, you know, third graders, they're, they're running around, they have no clue. You know? <laughs> and so I felt like that was where I, I felt like, okay, this content is good. I know this content works, but I have to have a structure where the kids, you know, there's, it's defined what they can do and what they cannot do. And also a structure in terms of the scaffolding. We're going to do this first, then we're going to do this first, then we're going to do this first. And then the engagement piece of getting kids excited about this thing. Because once again, we were music majors. We love to sing. We love to move around. We love, you know, playing all these instruments. So just really seeing where sometimes these lessons were failing, you know, just not working out well. And I realized, oh, I, I have this other piece. One piece is really good, but I need this other piece to come alongside of it in, with this class to make it work. And then there's other things, because it's just interesting where one lesson you know, I do it with one class in one school and it was great. And I try the exact same thing and I realize, oh, these set of students need something a little bit different. Usually the content's going to be the same, but I need to set it up a little bit differently. I need to have some different boundaries. I need to have some different scaffolding interactivities. So that learning triangle really came out of those failures, you know, things not going as well as I went. And it, you know, at first it would just feel like, oh my gosh, this was a terrible day. It's the phases of the moon or you know, something crazy <laughs> like that. When really, I think it can be uh, a little more clinical mm -hmm. to say, let me examine this, let me examine this and see which pieces we need to adjust to make this work. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, for for most educators that have gotten past their first year. <laughs> we set that aside as the grand uh, experiment that is first year teaching, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My heart goes out to every person that says, oh, I'm a first year teacher. And I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> because oh, the learning curve for you, right, is going right, to just be right. epic. No matter how much practice you've had or how theoretically ready you are, it, it's a journey. So setting that particular sort of space aside, but if we move into the folks, okay, I've tried this, I'm comfortable, I'm seasoned even. Right. I, I think that one of the things that's super interesting about this notion of the learning triangle, and I would say the piece that, that folks misjudge the most, I'll be super curious to see if you really agree with this or not, mm -hmm. is that engagement component. Because I think that folks think about engagement in a very linear in literal, literal sort of way, and that they gauge engagement directly linked to performance. Mm. And I would argue these two things should never, ever be linked up, first and foremost. And, and secondly, that of the three pieces you talk about, engagement is the magic moment where the most learning happens. Mm -hmm. And yet it's the space that I think that as a profession, we spend the least amount of time trying to perfect. Yes. And I would, I would definitely agree. You know, I really admire the work that my district does, but we spent, yeah, I mean, this summer, 
hours and hours of training on our new reading program for the elementary, which is, I mean, it's really good. We're getting all across the levels. I mean, I think it's going to be great. It was all content, you know, so much time. I don't know that I can think of any professional development we've had on engagement, you know? So to your point, yes, I think. And I think sometimes too, like I going back to that music major thing as a musician or as a reading teacher, as a math teacher, I think, as you said, we misjudge what is engaging. <laughs> you know, if I like to read, it's easy for me to find a book that I want to read. If I'm a 13 year old that doesn't like to read, that looks a lot different. And so really, yes, yeah, putting up. Um, and that's an interesting point about the performance tied to engagement. I think that's really true. And sometimes even you could have, yeah, I guess I, it's a, it's a new thought for me, but just thinking that I've seen students, you know, put together a product that is a, at a high level, like if you're using a rubric or something, like right. you could say that it met all the criteria, but they weren't engaged because it was like, well, I'm just doing the bare minimum to like get this thing. Yeah. Whereas, and that's that that's really my point, right? Because I there, uh, I yeah. do see people do that all the time. They're like, oh, but look, the end product was so amazing. The performance was stellar. Doesn't mean that it was in any way, shape, or form engaging. Right. And that process, yeah. And sometimes that that is the thing of, yeah, because you don't know. I mean, you don't know, could they have done that before without me? <laughs> you know, and, and that process, really, that growth that you see when they're not quite getting to the highest level. Yeah, that's a really valuable part. I also, I had a conversation with someone and they were talking about the engagement piece and just even dividing it up where kind of like social engagement and um, behavioral engagement. And I think that's another way that it gets confused. Like, are my kids behaving well? Uh, and that sometimes is called engagement, but that doesn't mean that they're no, actually engaged uh -huh. in the material no. and getting anything out of it. So, so let me ask you this because I'm just dying. So we're just going to do this. So, you know, Bill, it's just, I love talking to you. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so when you think about though, okay, so I know in my, my brain where I want to go with this, but when we talk about students and student engagement, true student engagement, when you think about that in your mind's eye, and you've seen it a thousand times in your own classroom, I know you have, because uh, I've seen it in your classroom, um, you know, when you really think about what's what is what is the essence of the magical moment when you can say, I have full engagement here. So for you, what does that look like? And I have no idea if it will align with what I think that my experience when I know that it's happening, but I'm super curious for you, what what is that moment? Yeah. And I um and I'll, I'll have to say I, I do try to define it and as broadly as I can. Yeah. You know, in the not, book. I get all that. But, oh, but, but for yeah. you. For, for and, uh, you, yeah. Bill. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like in the, in the music classroom, you know, I think, oh, well, I don't know. And there's probably several different answers. One, I think, is flow. And this idea of we're getting into something. You know, I, I love it when either it's me or the kids and we're doing something. And then I'm saying, oh, it's time to go. And the kids say, oh, my gosh, it's time to go already. Or even I say, oh, my gosh, it's time to go already. You know, because we've just been flowing in these things um and it doesn't feel like you know time is just suspended yeah you nobody know? wants to leave right they're but, like no 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 we're not ready yet yeah and there's a progression you know, I, I think you don't you don't get that by just like singing a song 10 times in a row but you get it by we're doing this and then we're adding this and then oh what about this let's think about this and, and kind of building slowly and so yeah i'd say flow is one of those things you know just thinking about after covid 
being able to see people's faces and the looks on their, you know, and especially with elementary kids, I feel like you catch them. You know, I think middle schoolers, high schoolers, college kids, they're a little more careful, guarded. <laughs> but with elementary kids, you know, occasionally I'll just see them and they're just, whoa. You know, yeah, yeah. They're yeah, so yeah. into it. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, I'd say that's some of the things. Yeah. No, uh-huh. and I think that you're right on with those pieces. You know, I think for me, and and I tend to work with older kids than you do for the most part. I would say the yeah. majority of the kids that I specifically work with are high school and collegiate kids. And then I love to play with the middle school kiddos because, you know, that is just an age where anything can happen, right? So, I mean, you know, good, bad, and ugly um, and everything in between. But, but, but for me, when I think about true engagement, it has those elements that you're talking about, but it also has for me the the sort of the quest that I can see sort of in the students where they want to know more. Either they're asking more questions or they want to spend more time doing elements to whatever the project or the thing you're you're doing that you didn't even plan. They're like, but we need to know X. Yeah, right? yeah. And when those kinds of things happening, exactly like what you're talking about, in my mind, that is when we have got maximum engagement because now we're just facilitating the learning that the kids are doing the teaching to themselves and to each other. And, and I think, and that's kind of the idea with the learn triangle is once you have that highest form of engagement, the content takes care of itself. Yes. Anyway, yes. because the kids are just yeah. ready to do, I mean, they're coming up with their own things mm-hmm. and you, you know, you throw them something and then they're just running. With it. Yeah. And yeah. that's the beauty of, yeah, really trying to balance those things. Yeah, one can really take care of the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent, absolutely. You know, so I I want to make sure that we don't miss. Um, and this is not my favorite topic, but it's one that we always have to address. And and you put a chapter in the book about it because I knew you had to address. And this is a whole thing about testing, so let's just put it out there, right? How do I? How do you think about um, sort of helping folks understand at the end of the day, right, that we, we, we have to do the standardized testing, but it is not the mechanism by which people learn. So how do you help people balance this big, giant question out? You tackled yeah. it beautifully, so help us well, understand it. Well, thanks. And um, I mean, there's all sorts of like pieces to it. And maybe I'll, and I alluded to this in the book, and this is maybe a little more deep. My dad's a farmer. And I, to me, that is just the, the truest thing of you go out, you plant the crops, and then the next day, you know, in four weeks, it's not automatic that this is where the crops are going to be at. You know, you, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't control the rain, you can't control the sun, all those things. But it was really interesting to me that my dad, always measured where the crops were at. And there was a time in high school when they were coming out with all the GPS guided systems, satellite systems, and he had these detailed maps of his fields. He could see where the yields were, what parts were doing what. He had, I mean, the computer was guided, the tractor was guided by the computer, all these things to see, you know, it was lots of data. And I feel like that's what the standardized tests are giving us. We're, We're getting lots of data. And for dad, then he was able to say, okay, well, I need to do this in this field. Even I can apply different things to different parts of the field. Um, But at the end of the day, the factors that he could not control were so much bigger than the factors that he could control. I mean, I I think just that realization, or and maybe I I think in um, teaching, we want to say the factors that we can control short term. You know, we want to look at this kid in kindergarten. And, you know, by the time we get to sixth grade, Hopefully, 
there's a lot that we can do, but from one, you know, map test to the next, there are a lot of factors that we can't control, but that doesn't mean that we don't have this data as a starting point. Um, kind of balancing that idea of just organic growth. We can do everything that we can do and be ready, but there are just things that are going to happen and there's ups and downs. And I think that's, and then, and then, sorry, I could just go on. And the other piece that I think we need to remember is we don't grow linearly. There's really, and I had to like, <laughs> so I don't want to really like examine it. Is there any way, is there any places where I can see that like, when you just go in this straight line and, and we don't. And so kids don't either. And so we're hitting them on this random day for this test, this random day for this test. It's probably going to be up and down. That's, that's the way humans work. And so we need to expect that and look at the greatest possible context that we can to be able to get where we need to get to. Mm -hmm. I think that, so here's a, here's a curious piece with this and I'm, I'm fascinated to sort of see how you would think about it because I do think about this a lot when we talk about testing and ultimately that always gets us into the space of talking about assessment and all that sort of stuff. And for the most part, I will, I will honestly say it's not stuff I, I really want to talk about because I, I don't think there's a lot of value in it. But, but the piece where I do see value from the conversation is that, you know, what are we measuring, right? And I think that traditionally in education and certainly the way we have to, and that's just a thing, we have to do it, right? Because we need data and, and data is great. Um, we need the data. So we need the standardized testing. We, 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 we need that to be able to tell us stuff as the adults in the room trying to, to sort of facilitate the journey, if you will. But I do wonder often, you know, what are we actually measuring? Because, you know, when, we, when we're testing in the traditional sense, we are testing where a child is at that moment against a benchmark that may or may not be real, A. And then B, is that we're not measuring progress towards a goal. Right, we set a bar and say, "Here's where you you need to be." We measure how far you are from the bar, not how close you are to the bar. Yeah, and I, I think you that's know, really, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting, yeah, frame. And and I'm not, I've kind of taken it for granted that to approach it, yeah, and and I think some of that is a language that I think it would be useful for teachers. You know, Let's take that on. <laughs> you know, we even when we're looking at percentiles or you know that benchmark, we can say, yes, this is how close you are, not how far you are. And I think there's some language. Now it is set up not like that. So there's something that we can do on our own. Um, yeah, and and yeah, and what we're measuring, yes, is very important. It is, and it is fascinating to me. You know, because I think the end thing that we want, right, the way that it was institutionalized, is we we want to see our students, you know, get to that one hundred percent or whatever it happens to be, right? That that's that was that was our goal as a lofty goal. There's nothing wrong with that goal, and yet I think repeatedly we're we're measuring how 
how far away you are from it, not how how close you've gotten to it. And it is language, but it's it's so incredibly important, and especially when we talk about kids that are struggling, right? Changing the language changes the journey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's really good, for sure. So I just think that that's a fascinating thing, you know, and I and I do think that it plays well in the whole sort of the the story that you were trying to tell through through the book, right? That you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you can get back to the joy that brought you here to begin with, then you can move your past. You you can be nudged beyond the sort of uphill bump that you found yourself on and go back to the thing that you love that brought you to teaching in the first place. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, that nonlinear thing, you know, it applies to our own emotions as teachers, our own journey as teachers that, you know, I think those first couple of years of teaching get better and better, hopefully, but then there's probably going to be some dips and we can expect that from us. We can expect that from our students, but yes, learn how to navigate through that and keep going. Yeah, sure. absolutely. You know, Bill, um, always a pleasure. Um, so I really appreciate you taking time at the end of your day um, <laughs> to uh, to have a conversation with us, share um, about um, about your new book. Uh, for all of our listeners, um, we will be posting resources and links um, so that you can find the book very easily. Um, and we would invite you to do so. And Bill, thank you so much. Uh, thank you too. It was, this was really great and really cool to see new ideas coming from this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education. <laughs>